Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Joint Artificial Intelligence Command Acting Deputy Director. Currently, Jacqueline is the Director of Government Affairs of PSI Quantum. Jacqueline served as the Acting Deputy Director and inaugural Chief Performance Officer of the Department of Defense Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. In this capacity, she oversaw the day-to-day operations for a 200-person, $250 million center, led engagements with the White House, Congress, and other key stakeholders and investors to raise awareness of DOD AI programs and secure policy priorities in support of the Jake offering. Jacqueline, first off, it's an honor and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Jacqueline, we always start the show asking our guests to describe their leadership style. Can you describe yours? Sure. Um, I would say there are a lot of sort of terms that people use. I'm sure a lot of them have scientific backgrounds about, you know, coming up with the way in which people describe themselves. But I would say the two things that I would say about my leadership style are authentic and candid, probably, honestly. Um, I have found throughout the course of my career um, and frankly, in my professional, in my, in my, sorry, in my personal capacity, that those leaders that lead with authenticity first and foremost, and are unafraid of being candid and honest about, you know, the state of things or their own personal or professional capacity, are the ones that I want to follow, and I think that's what I emulate. Do you alter your approach depending on the situation or audience? I mean, let's face it: in the Pentagon, you probably walked into a room and nobody else looked like you. <laughs> so many times. I would say I never alter my fundamental approach. I have never not led with authenticity and or candor, but I certainly alter the way in which I speak sometimes, the way um, I engage, even my sort of physical presence, I would say, probably does shapeshift a bit, I guess, depending on the circumstance, because as you point out, you know, people often associate with people that they feel comfortable with and people that they sort of think, look or feel or act like them. And so be, making people feel comfortable and, and, and you know, as, as trite as, as this is, meeting people where they are, I think is really important in establishing that initial relationship, whether you are leading or not. So you must have some great stories about the Pentagon. Here you were leading and interacting you know, with a center that was truly driving a whole new brand of innovation throughout the Pentagon. Can you talk to us about any obstacle you may have gotten hit with and and how you got through it? Yeah, I mean, the Jake is an incredibly interesting, I think, case study and, and an ongoing case study, right? It has evolved now into the office of the chief digital and AI officer. Um, so it's kind of become even bigger, frankly, than it was both in terms of scope uh, and scale and resourcing. It was sort of conjoined with several other digital transformation entities within the Pentagon and elevated. uh, And this is something that I and and many of my colleagues worked on elevated to actually report to the deputy secretary of defense rather than sit under the chief information officer, just in terms of being able to execute really effectively the mission that it was given. I think much like 
almost any new component within a large bureaucracy or the largest bureaucracy in the world, like the Pentagon, there were and continue to be a lot of really, really important and exciting pushes and a lot of people with a lot of brain power and a lot of willpower trying to push forward something that, you know, didn't necessarily fit the traditional Pentagon mold. I think people would be surprised by how many people that did not have direct Jake affiliations or direct CDAO affiliations are a part of this kind of crew of champions and advocates. One of the areas in which we really have struggled the most, and I absolutely hold this responsibility as somebody who was a leader of the organization, was in pushing back against the initial desire to not necessarily do all of the relevant groundwork, right? You have to move fast, obviously, and sort of break things and be willing to break things when you bring something new to bear like this, especially when you're up against a long history of culture or a long history of structure or doing things one way, and you're really trying to shift that dynamic. But I think you have to sort of do that in parallel with a really thoughtful analysis of that environment and what a new organization or a new mindset or a new effort is going to look like in that environment. And my retrospective is that in a couple of key areas, we as a team really did not do enough of the strategic thinking and the honest, being honest with ourselves and our overseers, whether that be in Congress or, or you know, ac- across the, the department about what this was going to look like and the challenges we were going to face, particularly from a talent perspective, not because there are not literally millions of talented people in the Department of Defense, whether they be civilian, military, contractor, but because we didn't know who they all were, we didn't have access to them at the beginning, and we did the best that we could with sort of a lot of short-term billet fills that sort of were given to us last minute to stand this organization up. But we really didn't, I don't think, understand what would happen in an organization where we were genuinely trying to emulate the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the sort of serious, large emerging tech companies for digital transformation. And what would happen if we tried to put into place processes and outcomes like those companies without having the requisite talented leadership from a product management or a service management perspective to to sort of carry that through. And that, that I think really has hindered the organization's ability to meet its objectives, frankly, at scale, and has hurt its credibility a bit with the rest of the department, which is a challenge that, as you know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, if you fail to achieve that credibility with department leadership early, you've almost shot yourself in the foot for life. And that is something that I think now CDAO is still combating. We could do a whole show on that. <laughs> <laughs> the the Washington Post just recently had a, an article about the Pentagon and the process stopping the adoption of innovation. And here you were not only adopting innovation, you were adopting and trying to push artificial intelligence, which has a whole you know, book full of issues associated with people's feelings of, of that having ethical um, outcomes. Um, how, as a woman, did you lead through some of that? It's funny. I would say 
the the qualifiers that that often people might ask me uh, are not just women, but as a woman, as a civilian, as a sort of younger leader in the Pentagon, as a non-technologist, I think these are all things that that it's important to highlight, both because I believe that people need to understand that leadership is often agnostic of subject matter expertise in the thing that you're leading, whether by design or or by happenstance. Um, but also because I think that that very fact has shaped the way that I've both approached a lot of the roles that I've held in my career and, and certainly this one. I have always taken on roles that people sort of shake their heads at and say, like, what exactly qualifies you to sort of have this, <laughs> this position? But they're the roles that I enjoy the most, A, because they're growth challenges for me and I love learning new things, but B, because I think it's so critically important, and I don't think that we do this often enough, whether it be in the Pentagon or in the commercial space. I think often we put the people that we assume will succeed in these roles just by virtue of an affiliation that we've made or they've made for themselves with what they're trying to achieve. And it's and it's actually uh, a detriment sometimes. So the fact of, you know, my not being a, a technologist at all by training, but also was sort of a younger leader and and frankly, a digital native or, or, or close to a digital native in comparison to some of my peers in the department. And the fact of being a woman in a largely, as you know, you know, male dominated space, I think actually allowed me to maybe ask more questions than other people would have felt comfortable asking and, and encourage other people to look at the problem in a very different way. I was, I was a French and opera major in college, right? So the fact that I've gone in the direction that I have with my career is antithetical to what I, to, to what I did um, and what, what I trained in, but it makes me always look at things through very different lenses. And so I guess sort of to answer your question more directly, I think it was and continues to be really advantageous to hold these types of positions where I don't have a lot of necessarily sort of training or expertise because, and, and where I am not the typical person that you would see in a role like that, because I'm looking at things through such a different lens. Like, you know, I'll be a little bit controversial for a second. If I hear one more time that STEM is the only thing that's important for the DOD, uh, for, for sort of the training that we're doing for the types of talent that we need, you know, I'm going to lose it because not just because I, you know, was a liberal arts major, but because I see we need everybody and we need people to sort of work in close partnership across all of these disciplines. And that is the way in which you actually achieve deep, thoughtful dialogue and, and action. Uh, we have so many brilliant engineers and technologists now in the department, many of whom, you know, can't necessarily write um, well, and so it's really difficult to understand what they're doing when you're trying to sort of engage with them as a user or as a user community. And so, again, I, I think coming to this to this role, which was so vastly different than anything I'd ever done before, through my lens as a, as a young female um, leader, through my lens as a non-technologist, through my lens as somebody that has never worn a uniform, married somebody that did, has worked with, you know, people in uniform almost my entire career, but allows me, again, that different perspective to ask, to ask very, very different questions than I think somebody um, else might have asked in that role.
I'm speaking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake Acting Deputy Director. After break, we'll discuss the effects of leadership on culture. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake Acting Deputy Director. You know, Jacqueline, we were in the first segment talking about your experience in the Pentagon and some leaders you may have worked with in the past. Um, You know, is there a great leader, whether it be from your career or from your personal background, that you just learned so much from? And can you share why? Yeah, there are many, but I will point to two who are related. One is retired General Vince Stewart, who was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency when I worked for him who was the deputy commander of Cybercom and many, many other things. And one of his actual sort of mentees as well, General Dmitry Henry, who is the current Joint Staff J2. Ironically, these are both Marines who came up in Marine intelligence. These are both African-American Marines. There's a third actually sort of in this crew, Will Wilburn, who's, who's an amazing kind of peer mentor and leader to me as well. I highlight these three gentlemen because they encouraged me, each of them in very different ways, and they're very different personalities, actually. Each of them encouraged me to embrace the things that make me different as a leader and to always think about the strength of the diversity that I bring in terms of thought and expertise and background and how that plays out and how that allows people to identify with me and potentially sort of find things in themselves that they otherwise wouldn't see as leadership qualities. Each of these three gentlemen has has overcome fairly significant adversity in terms of, I think, their own professional careers, personal in some cases as well. But none of the three would ever make that front and center of their story. And the only thing they would do is encourage me always to take risks, to make bets on myself, to take the really hard roles. And I'll just, I'll just highlight Vince Stewart really quickly, um, one specific instance. When I was working for him at the Defense Intelligence Agency, I had just come back from the Naval War College where DIA had sent me. I had many mentors. Um, When I got an opportunity to kind of quickly leave DIA, resign my position in the executive branch and go to the House Intelligence Committee and the legislative branch, I had many mentors who said, absolutely don't do it. It will kill your career. You're just making a name for yourself. You're an established sort of senior GS-14 here and you're doing great things and you owe the agency and you need to stay. And General Stewart, who at the time was the director of the agency, And I didn't know him super, super well yet, but I knew him well enough. He said, there's absolutely no way I would let you stay here. You can do more from this agency from the Hill, even if you rake us across the coals. I was going over to be the DIA monitor. than you can from from here, even working directly for me. And if you want a real seat at the table as a leader, that is where you need to go. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be different. And you're going to suffer the consequences and you will lose friends and you will lose, you know, professional colleagues that you thought were friends. But you have to go do it and you have to go do it not only for this agency, but for yourself. And he was 100% right. And I will forever thank him and hold him in high regard for that decision. What is the relationship between leadership and culture? There's a famous quote, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast uh, from the legendary consultant and writer, creator, director. I don't think he meant that strategy was not important, but rather that a power and empowering culture was a sure route to organizational success. 
What do you think is the effects of leadership on culture with that context? I think leadership is culture. (laughs) I think that quote is absolutely accurate in the sense that if you have a leader that is toxic, a leader that is not respected, a leader that refuses to lead, who obviously is then not a leader, um, but a leader in name only, I guess, your culture reflects all of that. I've been in so many different environments, particularly in sort of a DOD context where either there's a leader that is that does not trust his or her staff um, and team to the full extent. And that is absolutely known and felt no matter what he or she says. I mean, the worst cultures that I've ever worked in were the ones where there was a huge, what I call do say gap or say do gap, right? Like I say that I trust you. I say that you're being empowered. I say that this is a free space to push back and have different ideas. And then in practice, what you observe and what you feel on a daily basis is that is absolutely not the case. They do not want your opinion, right? They're going to do what they're going to do anyway. Whereas the cultures where the leaders are genuinely people like Dimitri Henry, like Vince Stewart, like Will Wilburn, like, like others that I've worked for in the past who are willing to fail with you, who are willing to tell you when they've failed, who are willing to share with you what's going to be hard, they're actually creating cultures in which people would literally die for them. And that is frankly how I feel. And I think that if as a leader, it is incumbent upon me and any other leader to create a culture where people want to be, are proud to be, and refuse to accept any less than in in a subsequent role. Jacqueline, you've had some very important roles in the intelligence community in the Department of Defense. Can you share what it's like being an executive in intelligence today and what drew you to that particular mission? Yeah, I'll start with what drew me because it was a, a bizarre story. I was actually sort of recruited very early, right sort of in between college and ultimately my first graduate school degree I was recruited by somebody who found my resume online. I spoke a bunch of languages and was learning others that were interesting to the intelligence community. It was something that I had never considered in my life. I actually thought I would go into international law. I wanted to potentially do some sort of diplomacy. And then I got a taste of this community that I was just absolutely intrigued by. And it's funny, another mentor uh, earlier in my career, David Shedd, who I worked for at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and then again at DIA, asked me one time sort of what had drawn me in. And and, and I, I told him, I said, I don't know. I cannot explain it. It feels like a calling. It feels like I'm meant to be here. And other than that, I, I can't tell you. And he said, honestly, like, that's how it feels for many of us who are here. Um, what it is like to be an executive in the intel community. Going back to sort of the, the roots of authenticity and, and candor, I was not an executive in the intelligence community. I held, you know, sort of mid-grade leadership roles. I was never a senior executive in any of the intel components. That, that was sort of reserved for my pure DOD space later on in my career. But what I will tell you is the thing that I regret the most and the thing that I work constantly to overcome is how few executive women I saw in the intelligence community mentor others and reach down and help others who were sort of trying to navigate their respective careers. I founded a group called Command After Next a few years ago. It's very small. It's just a group of young women in sort of national security and intelligence that I wanted to create a different kind of leadership and environment 
for um, as people figured out how to navigate this incredibly difficult and complex and overwhelming behemoth of a, of a community. And so, you know, I, I want to be honest, I, I wasn't an executive. I, I sort of led in my own right in different roles. But if I had been or if I come back into the IC as an executive, what I will absolutely do is what I've been doing from both DOD and from the outside, which is hopefully establishing opportunities for young women in particular to know what a good leader looks like and what somebody that they'd actually want to follow looks like. My personal experience was very different in that as a very ambitious, very driven young woman in the Intel community, most of the women, not all, most of the sort of senior executive women that I engaged with were not leaders that I would emulate, unfortunately. When you meet with these young women uh, that are trying to grow their career in the intelligence community, do you give them advice about how and where to find a mentor? Because sometimes finding more well-rounded groups of, of mentors can be helpful. Is that the case in the Intel community too? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I mostly, I think, give them advice about uh, whatever it is that they feel like they need advice about, because I don't want to presume that they do need advice in that in that space. But I think what I mostly offer is, you know, access to women that I know will and do and can mentor and champion and sponsor, which I think are different things, and help them sort of navigate not just the the identification of different potential mentors or champions, but also just how to navigate the community itself. Many, many, many of these women, and this is absolutely true for me as I as I came into the community, many don't know what all of the different possibilities are. And frankly, very few people actually tell you and take the time to educate you on all of the different things that you could potentially do within the community. So I think that people sort of pigeonhole themselves into roles or parts of a career or career tra- trajectories that may not actually be where they are the strongest or where they could be the most useful. Um, and so instead, I sort of do a lot of question asking in order to help them for themselves identify areas where they feel strong, where they feel excited and passionate and interested. And then I help them understand that there is in fact a career path for you, or there is in fact a role that you could get started with here. And here's somebody that you should talk to that either has done this type of role before, or that is working in it now, or that has overseen this type of organization. And so I think it's a lot more about sort of helping with self-discovery. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake acting director. Coming up next, we'll talk about leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake acting director. Jacqueline, getting organizations to adopt change is one of the biggest leadership challenges ever. We talked a little bit about that in the first segment. I'm sure that you uh, said that when you were at the Jake, but when you approach leading an organization to adopt major change, what is your strategy to keep your team focused on, you know, sometimes odds that seem against what they're trying to achieve? Yeah. It's hard, right? I, I'm not, I'm not going to make it sound easier. I think than it is for anyone leader or, or not. I think what I have learned to do, and this is frankly very difficult for me because I am, my husband will tell you, I am the most impatient person. I sort of have this curse, I think, of being able to see the world as it is and and understand the sort of uh, the, the system in which we're operating, but absolutely am able to see it as it could be. 
were, were there some sort of minor modifications or major modifications. But what I think that sort of level of impatience and my own experience <laughs> in this space has been has led me to understand what small victories actually look like. And so helping to keep the team focused, not just on the sort of big, far away, probably North Star, but, you know, enabling and ensuring that the team is celebrating those small victories, those milestones along the way. Oftentimes we can't even see them. We can't even see them for what they are. Um, and they might just be a really positive meeting with a, with a you know, a champion in the department or on the Hill or a, or a customer that you didn't even know could be a champion or, or would be or should be, or you've turned somebody that's been a barrier to entry. And just, again, like highlighting those successes so that the morale can stay as high as possible in the face of what's probably a very long road ahead towards significant real change. But then also reminding people, like, why are we doing this? I think the why is so important. And I think, you know, in my own experience, a lot of leaders have failed to articulate that why in a meaningful way that you can kind of identify with. And so making it relevant to each member of the team, you know, the why is important because X, you know, the why is important because, you know, as you continue to do this type of role, it's going to make it easier for the department to do why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not giving specifics, but I think the why celebrating successes. And then again, you know, always holding on to that North star and always reminding the team of like, this is where we are. This is how far we've come and we have made gains, but this is how far we still need to go. And, and continuing to be really honest about how hard it's going to be and how long it's going to take. I think that's the last thing people don't often, I think, hear it enough, but people really do respond to leaders that are honest about what it's going to take, how hard it's going to be, what it's going to look like, how ugly it's going to be in some cases, because at least then they can manage their own expectations. Now, you've worked both in private and public sector. Uh, yep. You've worked in DOD in the intelligence community. Is there a difference in the ability for a leader to lead change in private versus public or even within different agencies or components of the federal government? You know, I think in the private sector, there are places where it's easier only because decisions can can genuinely be made more quickly and are made more quickly in many cases, although not, not in all. And things can kind of happen if the top leadership, whether it be a CEO or a board, you know, say this is what we need to happen. Whereas in the government, you know, it's sort of consensus driven, coalition driven in a lot of cases. And even the people that you think are at the top of an agency or a component or whatever still have sort of other bosses, whether they be peer bosses or others to answer to. So I think from a speed perspective, private sector sort of leadership makes it a bit easier sometimes. That being said, to me, leadership is leadership is leadership. Like it doesn't really matter kind of where you are. And I think the approach is maybe going to be a bit different depending on the, the environment and the circumstances. But I haven't found drastic differences just based on my experience in different agencies, departments, executive, you know, executive ledge or, or, or private or public. You know, what a challenging time it has been for all of us with the pandemic, um, with, you know, racial divide, weather, social injustice, you can just go on and on. It's just been plain crazy in the last couple of years. This is impacting everyone across the world. Um, people are truly looking for that clarity of communication that you discussed earlier, and they're looking for that courage to be found in their leaders. Um what qualities do you think are really needed today to help for these stressful times to provide that empathy and understanding of what, you know, the people around you are going through? I think I think you said it. It's empathy. Empathy is I think the most probably the most important attribute in leadership right now. And 
frankly, not all leaders have it. And many that have it actually don't fully leverage it because they see it potentially as a vulnerability, which I think is really interesting. I've never felt that way. In fact, I would say I over-index on empathy and sometimes that is, you know, bitten me a bit. Um, but usually it's, it's only been really useful because I think what being empathic and really trying to put yourself in the position or the shoes of somebody else around you does is again, coming back to those lenses we talked about early on in this discussion allows you to think about it through a different lens. So think about the situation, think about your own situation through a different lens. I took the leadership roles that I had in, in the Jake at the height of the pandemic. And so I hadn't met people face-to-face with very few exceptions for most of my Jake career, actually, until sort of I was well into the roles and people sort of kind of trickled back into the office to some extent. And it's really difficult frankly, to be empathic through a screen, unless you see or hear, right, a crying baby or a dog or a spouse or a partner or whatever, you know, in the background. And even then, the screen, I think, itself makes it difficult to kind of fully feel that level of empathy. So those are challenges that we're already dealing with just kind of by virtue of the the remote work aspects of things, although I think there are a ton of benefits to remote work too. But I, I think it's really incumbent upon people everyone, not just leaders, but people to just remember at the end of the day, the commonality that we all have is that we are humans first. And that means that whether you see it, whether anybody is letting on, they're going through something. You have no idea what, but no matter what they look like to you, whether it's on a screen or in person in an office, there are things under the surface for them, family, illness, financial, you know, uh, fear, whatever it may be, that are impacting them and just allowing people both the space to actually express those things to you when they feel comfortable doing so. And in my case, I often share maybe more than I should about my own personal circumstances with people that I work with professionally, just so that they feel comfortable doing that in return. I I see many leaders out there that, you know, don't take vacation or kind of hide the idea (laughs) they're going to take time off. And do you believe that you need to lead by example? Oh man, yes, I do, but I do a terrible job at it. And I want to be really honest about that. One of the most profound and helpful things that anybody that has worked for me has ever said to me, and I will call her out. She is amazing. Her name's Caroline Bledsoe. She's actually one of, she's leading some work on the PPPE Reform Commission right now, which talk about a hard job. She early days when she was working for me at the Jake said to me at some point, you know, I I had sent out an email at, I don't know, 11 o'clock or something to the team absolutely not expecting anybody to respond or be online or anything like that until the, the, the next day. And she responded, I think at one in the morning or something. And the next day I said, Caroline, I, I need you to understand, like, please, I didn't expect you to do anything until the next day. And she said, well, you were up, you were working. And so whether or not that's what your expectation is, you're sort of, that's that say do gap, right? You're, you're communicating to me that, that you are doing things. And I in turn feel like I probably should be as well. That hit, home for me so much that now, I mean, it's not much better, but now at a minimum, if I am doing work like that, you know, I try to do the scheduled send so that they don't send until the morning or whatever, you know, I'm doing just so that people don't feel like they have to sort of emulate that behavior. But, but also I am working on myself and I I am a huge work in progress (laughs) because I need to get better at this for myself. I need to spend time with my family. I need to take a break. I need to take vacation and I just don't do it well. You know, uh, you're a new mom and, and, uh, 
you know, you, you look on Facebook and you never see anybody post a picture of the end of the day where it's been terrible and they're sitting on the couch all ruffled with a big bag of potato chips, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how do you find balance? I would say that it takes a lot of active work for me anyway. I often question if I'm being a good enough mom and if I'm being a good enough professional one when I am being a mom, because obviously you're, you're both at the same time, no matter what you want. I think the things that are really, really the most helpful to me, the main thing is that I am privileged to have a phenomenal partner in my husband, John, who is absolutely the best father that anyone could ask for. Uh, our daughter, Charlotte, Charlie, um, oh, unequivocally prefers him to me. So, so that's taken a little bit of getting used to. Um, but I think, you know, you have, you have to, again, it's like savoring the little moments in the same way that you do as you're working towards your professional North star. I, I make space every morning. I work for a California based company primarily now. And so I make space every morning since I'm on the East coast before everybody's up to ensure that I have my own one-on-one quality time with my daughter um, and then we're, you know, my husband and I are working on trying to make sure that we, we have faced as a, as a couple at some point, um, too, from date night perspective, but, but it's hard and don't let anybody tell you that it's not really, really hard to balance all of those things. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake acting director. Next, we'll find out what Jacqueline's advice is to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Jacqueline Tame, founder, policy advisor, and former Jake acting deputy director. Jacqueline, there are so many articles coming about empathetic leadership. We talked about it um, a little bit earlier. There's a huge um, resignation happening uh, across the nation, and a lot of our tech talent within the federal government are leaving how do you think we can change that dynamic and what can we do to recruit and retain the top talent in these very important jobs? I think there's some bad things like, like you just alluded to happening. And there's also some, some good things and some good opportunities. One of the things that we've really been focusing on, at least within the department of defense, and I know several other agencies and departments have as well is figuring out from an authorities, a statutory authorities perspective, what we can actually do. You know, in the commercial space, we hire headhunters and sort of talent scouts. And we really devote a lot of resources to, you know, exquisite sort of talent scouting and, and recruiting and, and then retention. Um, and I think in the government, we've underinvested in that space. Um, and we've not resourced our human resources and our human capital sort of offices well enough to do that effectively, given them tools, given them training to do this. So I think one of the things that we've been doing is exploring, like, could we actually legitimately partner with existing headhunters or nonprofits to actually find the most exquisite top tech talent? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this is one of the ways in which through a really interesting sort of public-private partnership, we ended up finding Craig Martell, who's now leaving, leading the chief digital and AI office for the department. And it was, it was a huge win. You know, he's coming as the head of AIML at Lyft and coming into the Department of Defense to sort of, you know, run this, this huge digital transformation for us. 
so so exploring the bounds and pushing the boundaries of sort of the, the way in we tr- traditionally think about recruiting and, and our options there, I think is really important. You know, if, if somebody recently said to me, if you were given, you know, carte blanche with the DOD for one day, what would you do? And I, I said, to be honest, I would I would probably hire the best PR and marketing firm possible and like do a whole campaign because I think that we we shoot ourselves in the foot by not actually effectively messaging what it is alike to work as a civil servant, as a military officer, as a, you know, a contractor in, in the department, in the federal government, and what the opportunities are and how they're so vastly different than what you get to do or what you can do and the limitations of what you can do in, in the commercial or academic space even. So I think, you know, messaging, figuring out how to actually identify those opportunities and differentiation is really important for, from a marketing perspective to the to the tech talent that's out there. And also just being really cognizant of how much tech talent is available right now due to the very, very unfortunate, but very real series of layoffs from very big technical companies. So the departments and agencies that are taking advantage of this and actively, you know, making posts on LinkedIn or, or pinging their networks to figure out, you know, who just unfortunately went through layoffs at name your company and how, how could they fit? How could we recruit them? Um, I think is really important. And then finally, you know, there's new like tech fellowship programs in Congress and with the executive branch that I think everybody should know about, everybody should apply to, and, and we should leverage more fulsomely. But but they're happening. They're just sort of still a little bit nascent. So Jacqueline, let's take a step back for a second. You had this incredible, not straight line career. <laughs> you know, you studied uh, voice and, and uh, music and then ended up in a career being a public servant working in the intelligence community. Where did you grow up and and um, how did you end up with where you are? I mean, I, was it because you met your husband who was in the military or what, what sparked that very first job? Yeah, I grew up in Austin, Texas. I am the product of two academics, two university professors, one art history, one American lit. So definitely not at all sort of straight path to to the intel community or the Department of Defense. I actually didn't meet my husband until um, I had already sort of joined the the intel community. And then we sort of met because we were were operating sort of near one another, actually. But again, it's this sort of, I don't know, this innate sort of curiosity that I've always had about things that I don't understand, worlds that I don't understand, but want to, that are intriguing to me, and sort of this sense of service that I've always had, but not really been able to name where it came from or why. And again, you know, I was I was recruited for this language intelligence program out of college through the NSA, and just the experience of sort of the back and forth recruitment, you know, going through to get my clearance, doing the language testing and training, going on to Fort Meade, you know, getting access to the people that had been in the community for a while and talking to them about their experiences. It was just this really interesting, intriguing aspect of our world. And the idea of being what the Intel community in particular really is, which is kind of silent patriots or intended to be, right? Silent patriots um, was really resonated with me. And it's, uh, it's something that I've carried through in all of my roles to today. I, I, I love the fact that we actually rarely get to highlight the successes, although that seems to complicate things for us, especially from a marketing and recruiting perspective um, that we have. But there's this real sense of pride and community and, um, and culture, right, that we all share because 
we have those shared experiences and they are quiet and not many people know about them. And, and, and in some cases, people think something very different than what's going on. And that's a really proud place to be in most respects. If I was to describe you, one of your superpowers would be being fearless. <laughs> um, <laughs> if there was a listener out there that would like to follow in your footsteps or uh, becoming or preparing for a role like you have held over the last few years, um, what would be your advice? The first thing that I would say is is cold call somebody like me. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say that because it happens a lot already, but this is what I did. I found people that I aspired to be like, whether I knew really who they were or whether I sort of superficially thought that I did. And I cold called them. I mean, one of the one of the most beautiful lessons that Vince Stewart gave me early days in our, in our relationship was that everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And if you sort of see people as, oh, that person's a four star, or that person's a you know ambassador, and I, I, there's no way they would possibly be open to to sharing their experience with me or sharing, you know, then you never ask, you never get, right? And, and I'm not saying people should go bombard people on LinkedIn or, or or whatever else, but in a targeted, thoughtful, curated way, find that person that you think you could really learn from. And ask them. The worst thing they can say is no. And in most cases, I think they'll say they'll say yes. Any advice on what the hot careers to pursue uh, this next decade? Oh gosh, there are so many. I'll just put a plug in for some of the work that I'm currently doing, which is very new for me. Again, sort of another sort of significant career pivot. Um, I'm I now find myself in the in the world of quantum technology, quantum computing specifically, which is something that I had zero experience in. Uh, my parents, I think, looked at me like I had four heads when I told them that, you know, now I'm, you know, going from AI to quantum. And my dad was like, can you spell quantum? Like, how? I don't even understand these career choices that you're making. But what I have seen, you know, is what I saw with AI in the government is something that I want to help not repeat with quantum technology, which promises to be even more significant and insanely world-changing than, than, than AI has been to date, which is that, you know, we as a government, as a federal government in particular, were not ready for the adoption of AI. Um, and I want to make sure that when this technology comes online, and by the way, it's coming much, much sooner than I think people think, that we are fully ready to adopt, to scale, to defend, to use offensively, to leverage for the unbelievable good that it's going to sort of offer across different sectors. Um, and so that's why I decided to take this role. And so I would say sort of anything in the emerging tech quantum space um 5G, 6G, you know, biotech, you can basically read them, frankly, on, on any kind of emerging tech strategy document are, are really interesting sort of spaces to be. But I would also say we, we need thoughtful journalists and media and we need people, please, 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 we need people to run for office at the state, local and federal level that are going to lead with authenticity and humility and empathy and all the things that we've talked about in this podcast to, you know, champion what we're doing in this country. Your career and success have had are just truly inspirational. Um, any pearls of wisdom you would have for that next generation or what you would tell your child, uh, you know, 17 years from now? Yep. I live by a Shirley Chisholm quote that hangs on my wall and in everything I do, which is if there is not a seat at the table, pull up a folding chair. 
it has guided my career to date. It is absolutely what I will tell my daughter uh, when she is old enough to understand those words. It is what I tell every mentee that I have and anyone who will listen. People often feel like they don't have a seat, don't deserve a seat, shouldn't have a seat, shouldn't get a seat at the table. And I think that it's categorically false. And if there's not a seat at a table that you want to be a part of, pull up a folding chair. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend Government. My guest today has been Jacqueline Tame. Jacqueline, I, I just truly want to thank you for your years of public service and your dedication to our nation's competitiveness on the field of technology and the world stage. Thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very valuable advice. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for doing the show. I think it's really important. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.